Our next story, it starts in 1957, Communist China, where Charles Lee takes us into one of the strangest times of his life. Snap Judgment. Do I remember the day I crossed into mainland China? Yes, absolutely. (laughs) I was nervous, my heart was beating hard, and I just knew that I was stepping into a a known world. How did you say goodbye to your father? Did he see you off? No, he didn't see me off. I had a little suitcase of clothing, and he gave me a little bit amount of money, and um, and that was it. And, and I went to the train station and boarded a train and went to the border. For Li Na, crossing from Hong Kong into mainland China was his last resort. People who were in Hong Kong at the time were mostly refugees from China. They left when the communists took over, so there was not a desirable thing to do. Very, very few people went back. But Lee desperately wanted to get an education, and his father told him China was the place to go. Going to China meant that everything was free, and he encouraged it, and I didn't know why. Once a powerful political figure, Lee's father gave him some advice before he left. Keep everyone in the light while you yourself remain in shadow. He said this means finding out everything there is to be known about everyone without ever divulging your own thoughts, your own plans, your own feelings, or any other important information about yourself. That's how he found himself on the border of the very same place his father had fled. There's a Chinese guard there, and in my case, it was certainly strange to me, and it was more than strange, it was bizarre that as soon as I went over to the border, there was a man in plain clothes uh, waiting for me. So he said, uh, ah, uh, you are Li Na, you know? I said, yes. Uh, he said, uh, I am from the government and I'm here to uh, welcome you and um, you know, I will take care of you from now on. It was very strange to me. I mean, it was a little frightening, but, uh, but I, I, I mean, it was no choice. So I went with him. On the train, the man started asking Lee questions. A lot of them. Who's your father? What's his name? And what was his profession? I was a little taken aback that he recognized father's name and wasn't sure what to make of it. My father had been in jail. He was a staunch anti-communist in his political career. I never tried to hide the fact that I was my father's son. I said, I want to take the entrance exam to go to the university. He says, well, uh, you will do that uh, a year from now, but uh, since you have just arrived from a British colony, we want you to go through a school where you learn uh, the new politics. Do you remember what it was like the first time you stepped foot on campus? You mean the school? Yeah. It looked like a factory. <laughs> Made of concrete, and um, it looked like nothing like a school. My reaction to it was, 
mind, this almost looked like a, a prison or something. But I was trying to pretend that um, that I was okay, that I wasn't uh, frightened in any way. But in fact, I was very much so. Lee had come from an elite Hong Kong school. So when he met the other poor students in the dorm, they didn't understand why he was there. Then he met his comrade, Comrade Liu. And it was made very clear that this person controls your life and controls your fate. Um, In my case, it was a woman responsible for political indoctrination and political teaching. We have public confessions. In the class, everyone has to get up to say what I did wrong, what I thought wrong, what what mistake I made. And uh, I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to say it. And I didn't know what to say. So I said, well, I missed not only nutritious, but delicious food, fish and meat and vegetables and, and, and so on. And so I'm wrong. So I shouldn't be thinking like that. And I should feel grateful. Can you tell me like what kind of things they would chime in with or what kind of what kind of things did they say? Well, you were just overprivileged because you lived in a privileged background and then a servant cooked all this wonderful food for you and you were just bourgeois and uh, and you should be ashamed of yourself. I expected uh, it to be a Spartan life. I, I, I wasn't expecting wealth. I wasn't expecting uh, prosperity. I was expecting life to be hardworking, but toward a common goal for the benefit of the common people. As the year went on, you know, the, the Great Leap Forward movement kicked in. Chairman Mao wanted to turn the People's Republic of China into a modern industrial state. So he and the Communist Party went into the countryside. And uh, everyone, regardless of what you do, were instructed to make steel. Peasants were not growing grains and uh, students were not studying and uh, everyone was making steel. So the consequence was starvation. In my school in particular, rice started being rationed. You're barely surviving. Your body is... uh, Your your body is just screaming for protein, screaming for some kind of nutrients, screaming for some minerals, and you are not getting them. Hardly anyone laughed. Hardly anyone smiled. Hardly anyone talked to another person. My father wrote me letters once every two weeks. I would tell him how hungry I was and all of that, but, uh, you know, he would write back to say that, well, in the process of uh, developing yourself, certain amount of suffering is not necessarily bad, and you just have to learn to endure and, and prevail. So when was it when this campaign to get rid of the four pests started? I think it's in the middle of the, my year there. Uh, was that 1958? It was Chairman Mao's uh, uh, um, uh, idea that the whole country should spend four days 
abandoning every other obligations and responsibilities and duties, but to go out and kill flies, kill birds, and kill rats and mice in the particularly in the rice field and wheat fields and mosquitoes, I think. Four days for each for each pest, by the way. Tell me about uh, tell me about the birds. So everyone is supposed to be out of their house with something that make noise, maybe a pot, maybe a, a metal uh, bowl and with a stick, okay? So you blanket everywhere. The whole country should be blanketed with, with human beings so that no one is more than 10 feet away from another person. And you hit whatever things you have, whatever instruments you have. So make noise or so scare the birds so that the birds couldn't fly down to rest. The idea was birds ate precious grain. So if China was able to eliminate them, the people could protect their food supply. Oh, it was just horrendous. It was horrendous um, cacophony. First of all, these birds are so scared, frightened, and then they fly, fly, and then they finally weaken from the flight, and then they drop on the ground, and some people would just go up and stomp on them and kill them. And, uh, you know, when I saw those birds like that on the ground with their eyes opening and closing as if they knew that they were, they were near the end of their life. And it was just so sad. I just felt so horrendous. I mean, I felt like a monster and I just couldn't bring myself to stomp on them. Then they moved on to the flies. Flies and mosquitoes are just for hygienic reasons for human health. The party cadres even had a motto. Stop work, swat flies. So everyone in the country was uh, ordered to stop doing everything for four days and go out and, uh, and swap flies. Well, we were doing it for a couple of days. I think what really drove us over the edge was when Comrade Liu uh, uh, decided that there should be a competition. She told the students that the person who collected the most flies would be rewarded. So I protested. So how can we count the number of flies we swap? And so we were told to keep the dead flies in matchboxes. Comrade Liu said, you will keep every fly you swat, count them, and turn over to me both the dead flies and your account at the end of the mobilization. Some of my friends and I didn't think that those were particularly good ideas. For example, there was open sewage everywhere. Uh, Flies were all over the place and uh, maggots. uh, You can smash all the flies you want. It didn't matter. They are reproducing faster. You can swat them. I walked by a small village where uh, there was actually a restaurant. The sweet aroma of cooked meat drew my attention immediately. And then I saw some party cadres sitting at a table. They didn't look starved. They looked well-fed, and uh, they were eating all these dishes of meat, which I have not tasted or seen for many months. After eating very unnutritious food and 
After all that frustration of killing flies and arguing with Chairman Liu, I was just beside myself for, for a brief moment. So I went up to the table and uh, I brought down my fly swat, which is full of remains of squashed flies, onto their dish of ducks. So they were, you know, startled and then they, they <laughs> jumped up and ready to kill me. So I said, look, Chairman Mao says, kill flies. So I'm doing what Chairman Mao said and you better not do anything against me. <laughs> and I turned around and uh, ran away as fast as I could. <laughs> so after years of the entrance exams take place, is that right? National University entrance exams. Um, it, it was two days of grueling exams and uh, I thought I did really well. A few days later, he found his results waiting for him. It, it was on my bed. It was on my bunker bed. Uh, and everyone has a little little envelope. Open it up. I was stunned. I got a notice that I wasn't ex- accepted to any university. So I mean, I was devastated. Lee had come to China and spent the entire year studying and starving, just so he could go to college. It was my only guiding star, as it were. It was to go to university and do well. I wanted my father to feel proud of me that I made it to a university in China. It was like as if the last glimmer of hope was erased. That would be it, you know. But then I was called by the political teacher to to her office. When he came in, she was sitting on the desk. She normally doesn't smile very much, and uh, there was almost a smile on his face. She looked somewhat uh, happy, and uh, I said, "I got, I got the rejection notice. I don't, I don't understand." I said, "I, I knew I, I, I aced everything in math. I knew I, I did really well in physics, I, in chemistry, biology." I said that I'm surprised that I get rejected. That's when she told me that uh, we know about your father. We think he's undesirable, and you are his son. I I think she was rather gleeful about it. She felt perfectly justified. So she said that it's obvious that your father sent you here to find out if he could come back to China. She said, you're just a pawn being used by your father to... uh, figure out whether or not he could come back politically in this country. You should tell your father that your father is not welcomed here. Lee's father wasn't just an anti-communist. He was a collaborator with the Japanese who had overtaken China during World War II. To the Communist Party and to most Chinese, that meant he was a traitor. Well, I thought I was going to pass out or I thought I, I for a while I was not seeing properly and, and uh, uh, I don't know what the hell was going on. I didn't know what to say. Uh, I just thought that's the, it was the end of the world. How did I know that, that my father betrayed me? 
because it just, everything came together. Well, he became close to me by giving me lessons on history and politics. And he suggested that, you know, I should think about returning back to China. There's no question in my mind that he used me as a tool and I suffered immensely. That's when I finally was motivated to say, this is it, I'm going back to Hong Kong. When I went back to Hong Kong, it was all a blur at first because I was so depressed. I was so down and out, and I was very emaciated. By then, Lee was six feet tall and weighed 95 pounds. And he was furious. He couldn't bring himself to see his father. So I just wanted to write him off, as it were. I didn't want to live with him anymore. I didn't want to have anything to do with him. And how long was it before you saw him? Yeah, it was a long time. It was certainly more than a year. That's how long it took before he decided to walk to his father's flat in Kowloon Tong and confront him. I was very nervous. I was nervous because I don't know what was going to happen and what am I going to say to him and um, what's he going to do to me? It was very obvious he was not happy to see me, and he and he, he glared at me. He looked with, uh, with great anger. So I, I told him, I said, you know, I, I'm back from mainland China. He said, yeah, I heard about that. She said, how come he didn't come to see me <coughs> first? I said, well, um, I didn't want to come to see you because I felt that I was being used. I told him that I had wanted to go to university in China, and I failed. I didn't make it because of him. That's when he got angry. He said, I'm the father. I do whatever I want, and you are my son. And when the father prospers and the son benefits, when the father is in dire condition, then the son suffers. That's just life. And I said, you shouldn't have done that. The next thing I know, he struck me. In fact, he punched me in the chest repeatedly for many times. Left arm, right arm, left arm, right arm. And I stood there and took it. And finally he stopped and I asked him, I said, how come you stopped? And he said, I'm tired. That meant that if he weren't tired, he would continue to hit me. Then I really got furious. I said, look, you hit me again and I'm just gonna break your arm. All right? So I just turned away and left. And that was the end of it. So I want to ask you because he taught you to keep yourself in the dark and keep others in the light. Right. But did you have any idea that he was playing a political game with you the whole time? Well, I never thought that these rules apply to uh, father and son. So much to Charles Lee. Charles is a professor emeritus at the University of California, Santa Barbara. And folks, there is so much more to this story. Check out the book, The Bitter Sea, Coming of Age in China Before Mao, 
with links on our website, snapjudgment.org. The original score was by Leon Morimoto. If you missed even a moment, get the Snap Judgment podcast. That piece was produced by Liz Mack.